Hey, it's Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics. For those who are new to the show, we really mean it when we say Beyond Politics. We do mostly focus on politics and government and news and current events, but we do like to go beyond those core things to some other areas of the world that really interest us, science and music and culture. And I am particularly into astronomy, which is why it was super awesome. About a year and a half ago, we had the lead project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope on the show, which was so much fun, John Mather. And since then, we've continued to check in with astronomers and science educators to talk about what the most important scientific instrument that we have going right now is finding out what it's doing. And so... Earlier this year, we did an episode with John Gianforti. He's a professor at the University of New Hampshire, and he specializes in science education. And we talked through the top five mind-blowing images from the first year of the James Webb Space Telescope. So we wanted to bring that episode back to folks today. Obviously, this is something that talks about images. So there is an accompanying five-minute video. It's on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to check that out and actually take a look at some of these images that we're talking about. But even if you don't, I think the science and the description that John is able to give here is still really interesting and super relevant. So with that, here's me and John G and Forty. It's the top five images from the James Webb Space Telescope that will absolutely blow your mind. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics, available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we're on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. And I am delighted to welcome back John Gianforti, who is a professor at the University of New Hampshire and the director of their observatory. He's the sky guy, as he's known as his handle online and throughout the universe. And this is my favorite set of shows that we do on this show when we have John on and we go way beyond politics and talk about things that maybe take us a little bit outside our day-to-day. John, it is delightful to have you back. A very big pleasure on my part to be here, Matt. I love talking about space with you, especially the James Webb Space Telescope. This is as much fun as I'm legally allowed to have on one of these (laughs) platforms. So here's what we're gonna do. I admit it, it's a bit of a gimmick. We are doing a five countdown. We just celebrated the one-year anniversary of the James Webb Space Telescope starting to make public images available. And we have seen just some absolutely stunning images come through. And we have selected, you and I, before the show, a top five. And we're going to just count them down. And I know that for our audio listeners, this is a little bit of a challenge because you're listening on audio. You might want to see these images. So what we're going to do is we will put the links in the show notes. And also we will have a condensed version of this on YouTube. So make sure you've subscribed to the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. And finally, we will probably release the full length video either on YouTube or perhaps on our Patreon page. And I will put the link to that in the show notes as well. We always appreciate supporters. All right, John, you ready to go? I'm ready as I'll ever be. All right. This is a trip literally to the ends of the universe. And that's where we're starting. So number five, we're going to we're going to take a trip to the absolute limit of what we can see in the universe. So what the James Webb Telescope has enabled us to do in this visualization that they were able to put together is you can using these images because of the web's incredible reach, you can travel in deep in space and back in time to 13.4 billion light years away, which is also equivalent to 
13.4 billion years ago. And you can see the universe as it was 390 million years after the Big Bang. And you can see this galaxy, Maisie's galaxy. That visualization is great. I love those short videos. It's only a little over a minute long. So it's really short, but really graphic. You really get a sense of three dimension going back and back into space. And when you go deep into space, the deeper you go, the further back in time you're seeing. And that's called kind of like look back time, right? The further an object away is in space, the further back in time you're looking. I'll give you an example. If you go out today or whenever you're listening to this podcast, you go out today and you see the sun up in the sky. You're not seeing the sun the way it was exact at that exact moment. You're seeing the sun the way it was eight minutes and 20 seconds ago, because that's how long it took the light from the surface of the sun to make it to Earth for you to see it. So you're actually looking back in time, eight minutes and 20 seconds. Probably the sun's pretty much the same as it was eight minutes and 20 seconds ago. But the further out in space you look, the longer it takes the light from that object to get to you. The sun is, you could say, eight and a, eight, eight and a third light minutes away. The nearest star beyond the sun, Alpha Centauri, is four and a third light years away, which means when you look at that star that's visible from the Southern Hemisphere in extremely Southern parts of the United States, you are seeing that star the way it looked over four years ago. So. If you see a distant galaxy that's 2 million light years away, you're looking at the way that galaxy looked when the light from the stars that make up that galaxy left that galaxy 2 million years ago. So you're seeing the way that object looked 2 million years in the past. And that's just a problem because the universe is big. Light travels really fast, the speediest thing in the universe. But 186,000 miles per second, if I'm recalling right. Per second, exactly. Per second. You heard that. So that's really fast. But yet the universe is so big that it takes a long time for light, even from the closest star, to get to Earth. So that's an amazing concept to think about. That is absolutely stunning. And you get to fly the whole distance in about a minute. The James Webb Telescope, having more than six times the light gathering capability of the Hubble, it can see something that formed only, like you said, 390 million years after the Big Bang. Now, I know 390 million years is a long time for people, but consider this. We're talking about the origin of the universe. In only 390 million years, there was already galaxies. And Maisie's galaxy at the end of this virtual look back that you're that we're talking about from James Webb is one of those earliest galaxies to form the most distant galaxy that we've seen so far, which astronomically speaking is fairly soon after the Big Bang itself. A lot of stuff had to happen between the Big Bang and when galaxies formed so that they could form. And that's the amazing thing. The greater the light grasp of a telescope, the further back in time, closer to the Big Bang, we can see. And I'll bet you that this is only a temporary most distant galaxy because they're always looking to expand and go back even further with longer exposures that will take us deeper into space 
and maybe see galaxies that are even they have formed earlier than this particular one. But right now, this is it, 390 million years after the Big Bang. That's so incredible. And I will just commend to our listeners and viewers. Last year, we were very privileged to have, I'm going to say, one of your colleagues, John Mather, who is a Nobel laureate in physics, who is the senior scientist on the James Webb Space Telescope on this show. And he got his Nobel Prize, essentially, for helping to visualize the echo of the Big Bang, to essentially prove the Big Bang theory. That's an accomplishment in life. And we talked a great deal about that kind of depth of reach that the James Webb was going to allow us to have, what kinds of things he was looking for, because he is the expert on this very bleeding edge of the universe and the very, very beginning of time. I commend that episode, which is still very relevant and very fresh, especially in astronomical timescales, to all of our listeners. Okay, let's go to the other end of the scale because the James Webb isn't just good for looking to the very, very edge of the universe. It can also give us incredible images of things that are right in our backyard. And number four on our list is something that's right in our neighborhood. We must be talking about Neptune. So you know that all of the, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, Matt, but in our solar system, we have eight major planets. We have Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. We call those the terrestrial planets. They're like more or less like the Earth. You could walk around on them. They They're solar. rocky. They're rocky. You could walk around on them. Then we have the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And then we have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Those outer planets called gas giants or the Jovian planets because they're more or less like Jupiter. Neptune is the furthest planet from the sun. But all four of those gas giant planets have planetary ring systems. You all know that Saturn has these, this beautiful system of rings that are beautiful to look at through a telescope or to look at through pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and James Webb Telescope. But all four of the gas giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all have ring systems. But Saturn's is the brightest. But the outer planets, Neptune, Uranus, and Neptune, those ring systems, as well as Jupiter's, which they're not very prominent, and it takes really good optics to get a good look at them. The James Webb Telescope has phenomenal optics, as we know, and it actually captured a stunning image, a detailed image of Neptune, some of its moons, its ring system, which was really, it's the best image that I've ever seen of Neptune's ring system, which is really pretty, as well as some of the moons around Neptune. Neptune has one of the largest moons in the solar system that orbit it called Triton. And it's just like a really bright star, but that's because James Webb Space Telescope has such great light gathering capability because it's so large in diameter. What I find breathtaking about this image is it's when we just came off of talking about, hey, we can see to the very edge of the Big Bang. We can see a galaxy that is 13.4 billion light years away. It feels, oh yeah, looking at the planets in our own solar system, no big whoop. But these planets are incredibly far away. I think it, it's hard to imagine just how far these planets go and how deep the gravitational influence of the sun goes. What people don't realize is that Jupiter is five times farther away from the sun than Earth is. 
Yes. And then to get to Saturn, you have to double the distance that you just traveled to Jupiter. So if you started on a trip from the sun to Jupiter, you'd have to double that all over again to get to Saturn. Yeah, and then exactly. you'd have to more than double it all over again to get to Uranus. And for my kids who are listening, yes, that's the correct pronunciation. And then you'd have to go another 50% farther to get to Neptune. Neptune is 30 astronomical units away. That means it's 30 times further from the sun than we are. So the resolution that we're getting here with this image of this orb of Neptune and the moons, and of course, these gorgeous rings is really stunning. And it's just, again, it's easy to take for granted when we're talking about visualizing a galaxy 13.4 billion light years away, but it's a big deal. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It is. It's a big deal. And we can see the planets in our solar system in exquisite detail. It's like we were in a spacecraft orbiting those planets, but yet we're viewing a telescope that's pretty close to Earth, really far away, like you mentioned. Let's move on to number three. I have to admit that I, I picked this one just because there are so many images that are just plain beautiful from the James Webb. We could have picked any number of them. You just mentioned the images of the planets. There are some stunning images of Jupiter, for example. We yep. get, we get formations of galaxies weaving in and out of each other. We get these incredible nebulae. We get these, we'll get to some of these others, but this one at number three of a cosmic nursery, I just, I think it's aesthetically maybe the most stunning image, although it's hard to pick. The thing about this image is we know in this stellar nursery, which is really a good name for these vast clouds of dust and gas in space, where we know stars form. The problem is stars form in large clouds of dust and gas that we can't see into with a regular telescope because the light that our eyes are sensitive to, we call that visible light because we can see it, is blocked. It's absorbed. It's blocked by the clouds. But the James Webb telescope has the capability where it looks not only in the kind of light that our eyes can see, the visible light portion of the spectrum, but it can see and it sees best in the infrared part of the spectrum. And dust is transparent in infrared wavelengths, which means we can see right through the clouds, right to where the stars and other solar systems are forming, which is truly amazing. Now we can witness stars and solar systems in the process of being formed. Now, if we different nebulae in different parts of the universe, we can see the different evolutionary phases of stars and planets forming, right? Because that happens pretty slowly. It takes hundreds and thousands of maybe a couple million years for solar systems to form. But if you look at enough of those stellar nurseries, you can see planet and star formation in various stages if you look at enough nebulae. And this stunning image, this infrared image from James Webb looks right into the heart of this nebula. And you can see all the great detail, which is no one's ever been able to do that before because of the vision and the part of the spectrum, the electromagnetic energy spectrum that the telescope works within. I, as a writer, I like to credit great writing. And there is a fantastic article on space.com by Robert Lee about this image. 
And I want to quote one of the paragraphs in here because I couldn't have described this image any better than Mr. Lee did. He says, in this image, it is possible to see jets bursting from some of the 50 or so young stars in the stellar nursery impacting surrounding interstellar gas and causing molecular hydrogen to glow red. These occur as the young stars are ripping free of their natal cocoons, comprised of what remains of the gas and dust that formed them. This makes the bright jets almost equivalent to a newborn baby stretching its arms for the very first time. <laughs> That's really good, right? <laughs> That's gorgeous. It's absolutely, I'm going to email Robert, just <laughs> chef's kiss on that. And he also points out that the makings of a protoplanetary disk of gas and dust from which planets will eventually form can also be seen in the form of shadows around some of the young blue stars, which is really incredible. That means scientists have so much resolution in this image that they can see where the planets will eventually come from in these newborn stars just by looking at the shadows that are formed. It's absolutely remarkable. Well, there's a whole, it's a whole new branch of astronomy, these protoplanetary disks, which planets form from within as stars form. There's leftover material from the stars forming, and these disks are evidence of those planet formation processes taking place. And it's just amazing that we do have the resolution that we can actually see these disks right now. It tells us a lot about how our solar system and other solar systems form. We are less than 30 years from the first detection of a planet circling another star, an exoplanet. And now we're at the point in the science, as you say, that's being enabled by this incredible new tool where we can look even deeper and we can see, hey, forget looking at a planet circling another star. We can look at the dust that's eventually going to turn into a planet in millions of years. That blows my mind. Speaking of planets circling other stars, let's do number two. And we're being sneaky here. We have two images that we're going to glom together here because we just couldn't choose, but they're all on the same theme of exoplanets. Dealer's choice. You go first. Which one do you want to hit? I like the one with the pla the planet that they detected a water vapor in its so there's a place within the solar system that's at the right distance from the star where water can condense out and this is where the terrestrial planets formed in our solar system just beyond the earth it got it was cool enough far enough away from the sun where water could condense out inwards of that point it was too hot for water to be present but the James Webb Space Telescope has the great ability because it has the capability to, to do spectroscopy, which is actually a way to analyze the light from an object, a star, a planet, a galaxy, and determine what its components are. What chemical elements make up this dust disk? What chemical components make up the atmosphere? If a planet has an atmosphere, we can now interrogate the atmosphere determine if a planet has an atmosphere and see what gases are present in that atmosphere of the planet. And the Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescope detected a water reservoir in this solar system that's about 370 light years away from the sun. We're not going to visit it anytime soon, but to know that water in a protoplanetary disk is present in other solar systems forming tells us that there's probably other, a lot of other solar systems that could possibly have planets that you could walk on, terrestrial-like planets, 
with water on their surface. Like I said, this is a bit of a bonus because there's not really an image that goes with it. What I love about this discovery from James Webb is that it really demonstrates the nature of how science is done. Little pieces, it's like the way planets form, little bits of dust are slowly drawn together until they form a cohesive whole. I just took my kids to visit the new New York City Natural History Museum wing where they have a meteorite display. And by the way, kids are natural scientists, is wonderful. They, their first reaction was, wait, were these actual meteorites? Yes, these are actual hunks of iron that fell to earth. And then their next question was, I touched them. Why are they cold? That's a wonderful question. That's how science works. We start to ask questions and we come up with hypotheses. And then we try to test those hypotheses. And what scientists have put together, because we've, as you just said, we've never traveled to any other star system. We have never seen the beginning of the formation of our own solar system. So what scientists do is they collect little bits of evidence over the years, and they put them together like a jigsaw puzzle until they form a picture that they're very confident about. And in this meteorite wing is, here's all the science that we've done on the history of our own solar system. We think that the dust cloud formed and we just got to visualize one in a distant nebula through the James Webb. And then we think that through gravity, it began to stick together and we got protoplanets and then we got planets and we got moons and we got other space junk out there. And what you're basically see, saying in this discovery is not only can we see this process happening around other stars, but we've been able to confirm, hey, look, there's water vapor. There's the key ingredient for life as we know it in the zone where we think we would find life around another star. And we can prove this one little piece. It's another critical piece in the big jigsaw puzzle of how we understand the universe. And I just love getting that that little puzzle piece in there. It's really amazing what we can do in ha having piece of the solar system on display where you can actually touch it, I think is really, it completes, you know, you read about them, you watch a video, and now you can actually touch a piece of outer space. I think that's stunning. That's priceless. Let's give the other end of this because this one has an actual image under our number two. When we're talking about planets, exoplanets, planets circling distant stars, we can actually look at these darn things now because of the James Webb. That's, that's, Stunning. It's one of the great accomplishments that you can do with a big telescope. Before James Webb, there were very few images of exoplanets that were available. There were a few, but they weren't very clear. And obviously, you can't see continents and lakes and rivers, right? Because they're so far away. They're many light years, thousands of light years away in, in many cases. But the James Webb telescope has brought those planets into better focus we can now look at those planets and determine whether those planets have an atmosphere and what the atmosphere is made out of. So we've made a lot of steps with the James Webb Telescope. We've detected chemical elements in the atmospheres of planets, exoplanets. And what that allows us to do is if we see certain gases, the atmospheres of these exoplanets, it can tell us pretty quickly whether or not, at least as far as we understand what life needs to survive and thrive, if that planetary atmosphere could support life in some form. Things like carbon dioxide, methane, ozone, oxygen, those are key gases that would say, if we found them 
using the spectro spectroscopic capability of James Webb that would say, maybe we better listen with our radio telescopes to for any radio emissions coming from that planet. Maybe they're broadcasting the Three Stooges are our equivalent of TV or radio. Maybe they're in the early stages of technology where they're still doing AM radio transmissions and that, which travel at the speed of light in an expanding bubble around a particular planet, just like they have been around the Earth for some 80 plus years, right? There's this expanding bubble around the Earth of radio and television signals, radio waves, that any exoplanet with alien capable of listening on with radio frequencies could understand and know we're here. So finding a planet, being able to see it, being able to de determine what kind of atmospheric gases it has, gives us a great hint of whether or not that planet could support life. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. And it occurs to me that the same thing could be operated in reverse. If we ever did get a signal, kind of like the movie Contact, right? We ever have that moment where we detect a signal, we now have the capability and we've demonstrated it with the James Webb that we could look at the star that it's coming from. And then we could say, all right, what are the possible planets here? And we could look at the biochemistry of those planets through the spectroscopy that you were just describing. And we could start to draw inferences about who are these beings, creatures that are signaling us. Our ability to understand that aspect, what would potentially be the most mind-blowing discovery of all, has just been advanced incredibly far. And it's just great to see a demonstration of that through this image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It makes Contact, the movie that was produced in 1997, so much more realistic. There was a lot of good science in that movie, but at the time, it was before we, we knew without a doubt that there were planets beyond the planets in our solar system. We suspected there would be. We didn't know for sure until 1992, and then confirmed planets like orbiting sun-like stars in 1995. So it's a really young branch field of astronomy, and that's why students that I teach really think this topic is really interesting because it's barely as old as they are. And of course, exactly. And so you could just imagine for yourself, we get a signal and we could look at, okay, what are the candidate planets around the star where the signal could be coming from? And we could start to say, huh, we can now judge, here's the size of the planet. Here's the gravity. Here's the potential stature of the creatures there. Here is the chemistry of the atmosphere. Here's yeah. how they might breathe. Does it look what we do yeah. what might yeah. their biology be like it is anyway mind blown speaking of which i think it's time for our number one and i think you and i agreed on this one and it is sometimes you just can't outdo a classic and that's what we've got here we're talking about the deep field image the very first image that president biden released on the 11th of july of, of 2022 it was a kind of a historic photograph it's the kind of photograph that we were somewhat familiar with because of the Hubble Space Telescope. And it's, the, it's called a deep field image, which means the telescope looks at a particular place in space for an extended period of time. And we call that a deep field because the telescope stares and it opens the, if you liken it to an old fashioned film camera, it opens the shutter 
exposes the film, in this case, the image sensors on the telescope's camera, to the light for an extended period of time, and it accumulates there. And the longer you keep the exposure going, the more photons of light from distant stars and galaxies accumulates, and the, more, the richer the image, the deeper into the universe you penetrate looking at galaxies that are foreground galaxies, galaxies that are more distant still, finally getting to Maisie's galaxy that we talked about earlier, 390 million years after the Big Bang. So it's like a three-dimensional die into the universe. And that image just improved upon the great images that the Hubble Space Telescope did that, that really revolutionized our place in space because the telescope only sees a very small piece of sky at any one time. If you held up your arm, your outstretched arm, and you looked at the fingernail of your pinky finger, the field of view, the piece of sky that the James Webb Telescope sees is much smaller, much, much smaller than your little finger held at arm's distance. And yet there are hundreds and thousands, even thousands of galaxies in that small piece of sky. And that's the great, that's a, an image that will forever exemplify the capabilities of the James Webb Telescope. I think what this image has at all, I think is is why it landed at the top spot for me personally. We've talked before about the fact that you see these distortions in the image that demonstrate gravitational lensing, which is a property of space and space-time predicted by Einstein in his general theory of relativity, which essentially once again reproves what we've already proved, which is that Einstein was right about the nature of time and space and we can see that in this image. And as you said, we can see in much greater resolution and clarity just how much there is out there. We are, there was a time where scientists were estimating that there were two trillion galaxies in the universe. The updated estimate seems to be, you tell me, that it might be more like 200 billion. What's a factor of 10 between friends? Is that right? About 200 billion galaxies in the universe? I would go one step further, Matt, and say that if you extrapolate that field of view that is much smaller than your little finger held at arm's distance to the entire sky, there's probably more than a trillion galaxies in the observable universe. A trillion. That's a one with 12 zeros after it. And each galaxy has 100 billion to 400 billion stars, perhaps. So I'm not going to get into scientific notation here, but that's a lot of stars. That's a lot of stars. That's a lot of galaxies. That's, so many stars, so little time. Huh? That's and, and then you think about the planets, the moons. You think about all the stuff that there is out there. And we're just getting a wonderful little slice of it in this image. Not to mention that it's another beautiful image. And it really, like our number five, which takes us to the very edge time and space. This image for me takes me to the very edge of my ability to contemplate, to hold an idea in my head. It takes me to the edge of my ability to do math. And it gives me just a sense, as you said, like a fingernail at the tip of your, at the tip of your outstretched arm. It just gives me just a moment's sense of the scale of what we're talking about here. And that is why for me, it lands at number one.
I agree. All right. We have, I'm going to go need to lie down now. This has been a remarkable trip through. First of all, anything that didn't make our list that you just want to hit on here that people should bear in mind. I think we covered a really good stretch of what the telescope is capable of, but the no sooner do I say that than tomorrow there could be a new discovery being made. And so I think you've covered pretty much all the really mind-blowing, right off the top of my head, things that you could talk about, right? From imaging objects in the solar system to stars forming, to planets, planetary systems forming, the galaxies that form shortly after the Big Bang. The only other thing that I could possibly think of is that the James Webb Telescope has an estimated lifespan of about 20 years. It's sitting out there in space. It's doing work all the time. And getting time on the James Webb Telescope is pretty difficult to do. There's a huge demand for it. But it does have a limited lifetime. And one of the things that limits the lifetime of the telescope is it's in a pretty dangerous place. Space is a tough place. There are interplanetary dust particles that are traveling through space. The same little dust particles and the bigger ones that ended up in the museum in New York City, they could, they even smaller pieces could impact the mirrors on the Hubble Space, on the James Webb Space Telescope. And one a meteor actually did, micrometeorite, just did hit the James Webb Telescope several months ago. And it's still perfectly operational. But that is a, you can consider that over time, this is going to happen to the telescope, and it's a normal occurrence because of where the spacecraft is. Every day on the Earth, we have a planet that we live on. It's about 8,000 miles across, traveling about 19 miles a second around the Earth, around the sun. Okay, Every day, the Earth accumulates about 100 tons of micrometeorites and larger pieces of space debris that fall to Earth, right? Some of them people find and they put them in museums, in, which are great examples of extraterrestrial material that formed at about the same time the Earth did. But those same micrometeorites or those same micrometeors, I guess we call them because they're in space, could damage the, the James Webb Telescope mirror. The larger the surface area of your mirror, the more likely it is to be struck by one of these. Now, luckily, most of the pieces are small. And the mirror can withstand lots of impacts, but just wanted to mention that it's a natural occurrence because the space telescope is in space and space is a tough place to make a living. I love the idea. I've never thought about this, that the earth is like a big snowball rolling downhill and accumulating more stuff as it goes, as we sweep our way through space at 19 miles per second. Yes. Oh my gosh. All right. That was my very last synapse that you've just torn apart there. For folks who live in New England, if you've been listening to this and you've been thinking about these cosmic time scales and distance scales, I assure you that the drive to the UNH Observatory is really not that big a deal. And on the first and third Saturday of every month, you can go to an open telescope night and meet with John and he there's a public night and I tell people about it. You can take people on a tour and they can have that kind of immediacy of seeing some of these incredible things in the sky. There's always something new in the sky. And we hold these public star parties, like Matt said, on the first and third Saturdays. 
in the summertime when it gets darker later, we hold them from nine to 11. Later in the fall and in the winter when the sun sets earlier, we run them from eight to 10 p.m. You do, you do have a, you can come for a part or the entire session and whatever's up in the sky, star clusters, nebulae, galaxies, comets if they're visible, planets, we show you whatever is in the sky. And if you're lucky, the moon will be out. We can see it in the sky. It's always a huge showstopper is looking at the moon in, in close detail. Wonderful. People can find out more about that online on your Facebook page. And John Gianforti, thank you so much for this tour to the very edge of the universe. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Matt. Every time. Really fun to do these with you.